This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Kevin Hines, a mental health advocate with a remarkable story to tell about surviving his attempted suicide. I'll talk with the director and one of the stars of Invisible Theater's The Lifespan of a Fact. It's a thought-provoking stage play exploring where truth begins and ends in the media. And visit the Arizona History Museum for an exhibition of the Migrant Quilt Project. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The first story on this week's show is about suicide from the perspective of a survivor who now advocates for better mental health services and suicide prevention. Nothing graphic will be discussed, but we understand that this topic is not appropriate for all listeners. National Suicide Prevention Week is September 4th through the 9th. Kevin Hines works year-round, sharing his own story of survival and hope, and he's visiting Tucson on Friday, September 9th, to screen his new documentary, Suicide, The Ripple Effect. In the year 2000, when he was 19 years old and experiencing paranoia and hallucinations, Hines went to San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge and took the 250-foot jump to the water below. At that time, on average, someone attempted suicide by jumping off the bridge every two weeks. Very few people survive. And although Kevin Hines suffered severe injuries, he managed to stay afloat. Amazingly, a wild sea lion circled Hines, and the animal would push him back up to the surface if he sank, until he was rescued by a Coast Guard raft. It's a story that Hines has shared with others many times in the years since, through books, television, and film. I asked Kevin Hines to start by telling us about his life before his near-fatal experience. I was born in severe poverty. I was taken away from my birth parents because of their drug use and placed into foster care. My brother and I were. We both got a vicious strain of bronchitis due to neglect in one of the homes, and he died. I immediately developed a severe detachment disorder from reality and abandonment issues that follow me until today. But unlike my poor brother, I got very lucky. I ended up in Hines' home, and Patrick and Deborah Hines made me their son. And growing up, I really believed everything was going to go smooth sailing from there. But at 17, I had a complete mental breakdown in front of 1,200 people at a theater show I was performing in at my high school. And I ended up seeing a psychiatrist and being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, the very same brain disease both of my biological parents had before me. I ended up at 19, due to that bipolar depression and suicidal ideation, attempting to take my life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Obviously, I survived the fall. I broke my body, but not my will. I fought very hard to regain full physical mobility. And after my attempt, I went into my first psych ward after my physical hospital stay. Ten psych ward stays after that, the next 14 years, up to 2019 pre-pandemic. I have not been in a psych ward since 2019 because I've gotten my mental health really balanced the best of my ability. I am not recovered. I'm in recovery. 
I live in recovery like someone would with substance use disorder, and I fight for my mental well-being every day. In the film that you made called Suicide, The Ripple Effect, there are many people who speak, those who have lost loved ones, those who try to save lives every day, your father, Patrick Hines. There's a, a nurse from the hospital that you were taken to after your jump. She's lovingly known as Trauma Mama. <laughs> and she says that she could hear you coming down the hall as they were wheeling you into the emergency room and that you were saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, I, I remember that. I remember um, having a great deal of guilt and shame for what I had just done. When my father entered, he said, Kevin, I'm so sorry. As I'm sorry I missed the signs. And I said, no, Dad, I'm sorry. I had a great deal of shame and guilt because of what I did. And I can tell you that from the moment I left the rail, it was an instant regret. I don't think I've ever confronted the idea of the emotions that one would be uh, experiencing after an attempt to know that you immediately were telling people you were sorry. That's something I'm going to remember from seeing your film, Kevin. I have to ask you, although you obviously began to fight for your mobility and to re, you know regain your health immediately following the injuries, did you ever find yourself struggling with the ideation of trying another attempt? Not immediately after the attempt, but certainly um, for the last 22 years, I've lived with chronic thoughts of suicide. They plague me, but I maintain they'll never kill me. When I was pulled out of the water by the Coast Guard, after the sea lion kept me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me, I remember the Coast Guard looking at me and saying, do you know what you just did? And then they asked me why. And I, my answer was, I don't know. I thought I had to die today. And this most senior officer leans in and says, son, do you understand how many people we pull out of these waters that are already gone? I said, no, and I don't want to know. And he said, we're going to tell you anyway. He said, young man, this unit alone has pulled out 26 dead bodies from these waters. And only one live one this year, you. And that gave me this great point of perspective. Probably the greatest I'd ever received. That no matter the pain I would be in in the future, I would never again attempt to take my life. I'll die of natural causes or old age. Because I've been given a gift of a second chance at it. Yeah. For people who live a life of mental health and who don't have to struggle with some of the negative emotions that others of us do, what would you want them to know about what living with bipolar really means? Well, I think in order to love someone with bipolar disorder, you have to accept that they're going to have immense ups and downs. And those ups and downs are going to throw the lives of those around them into a hurricane of sorts. And you're going to experience those ups and downs with them if you love them enough and care for them and are their caregivers. It's going to be difficult. It's not smooth sailing. There's going to be breaking points. There's going to be limits reached. But the people that are struggling with bipolar, like myself, are not doing it on purpose to hurt you. Their behaviors are direct in direct correlation with their brain's chemistry. And that's not their fault. But when people have brain pain like I do, those around us look at us and they say, snap out of it. Get over it. What's wrong with you? Pull yourself up by your bootstrap. It's all in your head. 
You're damn right it's in my head. It's in my brain, the single most powerful organ in my body. And it's malfunctioning. And I have a brain disease just like one would have any other organ disease. I almost died by suicide. I didn't try to commit suicide. There's a difference. I, I didn't commit a crime. I didn't commit adultery. I attempted to take my life because of lethal emotional pain. Tell me why this film is called The Ripple Effect. The film is called Suicide, The Ripple Effect for a few reasons. A lot of people came to us when we were making the film and said, you should just call it The Ripple Effect. No one's going to see a film called Suicide, The Ripple Effect. No one wants to talk about suicide. Even when submitting to several film festivals, the response we got was, the name is too intense. But my co-director and I maintained that we needed to take the word and the power away from the word and use it anyway. Suicide happens and we can't deny it anymore. We have to tell the truth. And the ripple effect came from a couple of things. When my father and I went back to the bridge a year after my attempt, to the date of my attempt on the anniversary, I picked a flower from a flower bed earlier that day. He told me to show him exactly where I had jumped. And I showed him the exact light rail. We said a few prayers. And we dropped the flower off the bridge and it wafted down, hit the water, made the tiniest of ripple effects and two feet to the right popped up a sea lion, which was just a, an unbelievable scenario <laughs> given what had happened to me when I jumped the year prior. I took note of that, that moment and that ripple effect. But next to that, there is a ripple effect of any suicide around the world that is left for generations of families that are devastated. And the ripple effect is such that, as I said in the film, it's incalculable. They say that now, in the film, they say, we had learned that it was 115 people are directly affected by suicide, any one suicide. 115 people directly affected by any one suicide. Now the number is closer to 200, as different studies have been done. I believe it's much more than that. I believe thousands of people are affected by every one suicide. You've got to consider all the people that person never met, but that know their story and how that affected them secondarily, tertiarily, and, and going forward. Think about the son or daughter that didn't get to meet their father or mother. It goes on for generations. It goes on forever. And the people that live in the wake of that destruction are left in pain for the rest of their lives. And suicide is like no other death in the world that way. It continually cascades down through the lineage of that family. Yeah. Um, it can never be forgotten. It's often hidden. But when people find out, it breaks them. And that's what I meant by that. Kevin Hines will present a free screening of his film Suicide, The Ripple Effect, followed by a Q&A session on Friday, September 9th at the Leo Rich Theater. That's located at 206 South Church Street in Tucson. There's a link to register for the screening on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The empirical truth about almost any human experience can be hard to ascertain. A new play dramatizes the real-life story behind a well-documented case of truth and fiction causing friction. It's called The Lifespan of a Fact. And here are two guests to tell us about the Invisible Theater's current production. Susan Clausen, I'm Managing Artistic Director of the Invisible Theater and the producer and director and designer of this production. Hi, my name is Emily Gates. I am an actor local here to Tucson, and I am playing Emily Penrose, the editor in Lifespan of a Fact. This play was chosen because it was intriguing to me, and it posed a question that I think everyone is asking in this day and age, 
what are facts, what are alternate facts, and this play, based on a real situation, delves into that. There was a nonfiction essay that a writer named John Degata was hired to write that was declined by its first publisher, but then went on to be possibly published by another magazine. They brought in a fact checker, and that's where that layer exists. Originally, it was 2003 when it was commissioned by Harper's. Harper's then rejected it. The Believer magazine optioned it with this young millennial fact checker from Harvard. The actual essay was 15 pages. The fact checker had 130 pages of notes. (laughs) So right there, you can see the arc of the conflict. Watching it every night and listening every night, I hear different things. And it just struck me when the young fact checker, Jim Fingal, says, well, you're saying if you say it enough, I'm supposed to think it's right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's like ripped from the headlines. We have been exposed to that, a bombardment of that. So there's great humor in the piece because they're two opposing views and they are both, one's pontificating one about the beauty of language and the rhythm of language and the other is pontificating on, yes, but it must be factual. You can't be one second off or we will question the authenticity and the accuracy of the entire piece. And the character that Emily plays, Emily Penrose, is the editor who has to be the adult in the room. Emily, what was your reaction when you first were exposed to this play? I remember Suze had asked that I come in to do a read-through of the play. And being an actor, my initial emotion always when you're asked to read a play is curiosity. I was very curious about the play, about the character that I would be playing. So I did a little research and I learned that it was a true story. And then you read the synopsis of it where it talks about an essayist brings his piece in and the fact checker checks the facts. And I was like, oh, okay. So obviously there's going to be a character here who's right and who's wrong. Because when you think about life and the world around us, you want to believe that facts are the the final stand on everything. And so I walked into the play already having decided that, okay, the character of Jim Fingal, the fact checker, is going to be correct. And then you read this play and there are certain things that strike you, like talking about doing justice to a child for a mother, uh, talking about how you want your piece to represent someone's soul, not necessarily the the body that they inhabited. You want the story to grab people and make them look at the events in their lives and it changes their perspective. And it has such a interesting and and ambiguous ending that really leaves the audience going, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. I feel like I can side with this character and this character because they're all right in what they're doing. And it, it really, every night I take something new away from it and each rehearsal, I learn something new, and it's it's a fascinating piece. What did you find most useful in your history or in your training as an actor to help build the character of Emily Penrose? She's an editor. She's an executive. She's playing this game, and women have to play the game differently than men do. I immediately thought of Gloria Steinem. She's not only somebody who knew how to play the game. She knew how to work people 
And I think that was the most fascinating thing about Emily is that she is somebody who she's honest. Honesty is probably one of her like core values. She will be real with you. She's not harsh, but she she knows how to to work with a crowd, to work with people. And in her core, she's she's a writer. She's somebody who loves story. And that's something that as an actor I can relate to. I love stories. I love getting to tell someone's story, getting to feel what it's like to be them. Um, and and so does she in, in her way as a journalist. She, she wants to create a world where she builds empathy based off of telling people stories that they might not have heard before. You know, we often think of things as black and white. It's either right or wrong, but boy, this has more than 50 shades of gray. <laughs> <laughs> Invisible theater has always found it important to include a community component to get people to be more involved and to talk about it so that they don't just walk out of the theater and go to their individual places and argue about the play later. (laughs) We want them to do it in public. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about the community side component. Well, we're so excited. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners know Ann Brown and retired from the Arizona Daily Star in 2017 and edited every section of it. So when I called her, I thought it would be so interesting as a journalist to get her take and perspective. So following the performance on September 8th, in a post-show discussion, Anne will join our ensemble so she can speak from her own personal experience in the world of journalism and magazine editing and tie it into the themes in the play. So it's intriguing, it's thought-provoking, it's funny because of the opposites, Mm -hmm. and it encourages us to think. So to me, that's the best of invisible theater, of what we do is that we encourage community dialogue. And through humor, we open up our minds. It's much easier to let different points of view in through humor than being a didactic piece saying, this is right and this isn't right. You know, this way it's really encouraging community dialogue. My guests were director, producer, and designer Susan Clausen and actor Emily Gates. The play, The Lifespan of a Fact, runs through September 11th at the Invisible Theater, located at 1400 North 1st Avenue in Tucson. Tickets and information about Invisible Theater's COVID protocols are available at invisibletheater.com. The volunteer-powered Migrant Quilt Project was started in 2007. Each quilt commemorates people who have lost their lives in the desert, attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. The quilts now have a home at the Arizona History Museum, and guest contributor Julia Bloomberg has the story. Outside the Arizona History Museum, the street is often bustling with cars, students walking with friends to and from class, and the public shuttle service, the SunTran. I'm meeting up with Vanessa Fajardo. She is a first-generation Mexican-American with a passion for history. She thinks back to her family's history of crossing the border while she's setting up a new exhibit about quilts. 
I'm hanging these quilts, I realized, what if my parents had been born at a different time? What if my mom was able to come over, but my dad, was, like, I wouldn't be here, first off. What if neither of them came over? Would I have been in Mexico? What is that where I would be living? Um, would I be one of these people on these quilts? Would my parents be someone on these quilts? Vanessa is the museum curator at the Arizona History Museum. She has worked at the museum for five years and also conducts research. She gives me a tour, weaving through the two-room, gray-walled exhibit located on the first floor of the museum. Twenty quilts are on display. Each quilt is a memorial piece, so it is to pay tribute to those who are crossing the border, trying to find a better life, trying to escape you know, their government, different things like that. They want to be safe. That's first and foremost what we want people to remember is that these are people, these are humans, and these are people who are risking their lives to try and find a better life. None of the quilts are the same. They're all made by different quilters and groups. So sometimes, for instance, this one I believe has about 10 quilters, and it's a group from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Each quilt is dedicated to the Tucson sector, so it's people who are trying to cross the border in Arizona. This one, they use the jeans, for example. They have the Virgin Mary in the middle. Each quilt square has the person's name. And along with this, we have our um, labels over here, and it has the number of deaths. So this one for 2000, 2001, there was 136 deaths. One of the volunteer quilters incorporated the desert landscape at the very top of the quilt. It is painted with acrylics on white denim material. The quilt is a little smaller than a queen-size blanket and is adorned with many colors, tie-dye, blues, purples, and yellows. Every thread pulled through the needle that inscribes the names of the migrants found in the desert is stitched into the jean fabric. In the exhibit rooms, there are also artifacts that were donated by Jack Dash, a naturalist and writer, and Luke Swenson, a documentary photographer. Shoes, used clothing, photographs, a Red Cross blanket covered in leaves and dirt, a Border Patrol belt, and shirts are some of the artifacts included in the exhibit. A makeshift hospital stretcher made out of wooden sticks was found along the migrant trail in Arizona. It almost looks like a ladder because then you have limbs and different parts of trees going across the way and being tied to be able to carry her across the border so that way she could get help. And it was made for a woman who got so sick she wasn't able to continue. And the people she was with knew they had to get her help. They made a stretcher and they carried her the rest of the way, got her to St. Mary's, but she eventually passed away. So this is one piece for us that speaks a lot without having to speak a lot. Walking into the next gray-walled room of the exhibit, more quilts are hanging and more artifacts are waiting to be seen. In the center of the room is a sculpture made out of objects found in the desert that shows that adults are not the only ones crossing the border. Families are also crossing with children, including babies. And then this piece of art right here in the middle is what we call Migrant World, and it's made with artifacts that are found along the migrant trail. So here you have a backpack that was found, and nothing's been taken out. So it's attached, they've opened it, but in it you'll have you know, baby powder, talcum powder, there's a pair of socks in there, I believe. One quilt in the same room shows the literal border wall splitting the quilt. Above it are buzzwords, or keywords, that describe what migrants seek when they leave their home. Security, hope, and safety. Below the border wall, another set of buzzwords describe what migrants experience as they get closer to the wall or along their journey. Rape, drugs, and violence. You know, half of the people want to talk about these and half the people don't want to talk about them. You can talk about 
these individuals coming over as gangs, but you can't talk about these female individuals coming over who are experiencing abuse and rape and different things like that, because that's almost like the no-no word that you don't use. Vanessa Fajardo has been planning this exhibit for about nine months, and it opened to the public earlier this year. The founder and former director of the Migrant Quilt Project, Jody Ibsen, radiates positive energy with a beaming smile. Soon after the first quilt was made in 2007, Jody met someone here in Tucson who volunteers on border issues. Peggy Hazard assisted in arranging the showing of the quilts in exhibits around the country. This exhibit is the first time all 20 quilts have been hung together, something that Jody really wanted to happen. And she actually got super emotional. She's like, they've never all been up together. Desconocido, desconocida. Jody reads the names of migrants who have died in the desert. The names come from the Pima County Examiner's List on her laptop. This project started in 2007 after a trip Jody took to Central America and Mexico. She was inspired by the names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt, made in the late 80s, commemorating people who died of AIDS and related illnesses. When she came back from her trip, Jody wondered what she could do to help. But when I got back from Central America, Mexico, and met with those families, I came back and I had a huge bout of depression. And I felt extremely powerless because I could not give them money, enough money. I did not have the money. I could not lift them up out of their distress, you know. I couldn't lift them out of abject poverty. There was just no way I could do that for everyone. One day, while she was out on a hike through the desert with volunteers of local Tucson organizations, Jody came across a campsite where migrants often abandon their belongings to continue their journey. This is the moment she knew that she could find solace in making quilts. So I was collecting these things in the desert, you know, uh, blue jeans, uh, shirts, um, shoes. I would collect shoes just for exhibit purposes. Um, There's a lot of bandanas out there. There's a lot of um, different kinds of clothing materials like children's clothing, children's t-shirts, children's backpacks. I found a Winnie the Pooh backpack with a lot of supplies in there for a small child or infant, you know, that included some diapers and clothing. Everything fell into place, and before she knew it, the first quilt had been made. At the time, she didn't think that these could end up inside a museum. The growth of the exhibit over the past 15 years has been remarkable, as these quilts have been shown around the United States, including Oro Valley, the Longworth Building near the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and the Urban Edge Gallery in Waukegan, Illinois. The quilts help people near and far from the border learn about the migrant journey. They also helped loved ones find closure, which Jody has witnessed on several occasions. There was one particular evening when we were in Waukegan, Illinois, and we were at the um, Urban Edge Art Gallery. She met Josue, the cousin of Jaime Pasillas, who had died in August 2012, close to the Arizona-Mexico border. His cousin Josue went up to a quilt and found his cousin's name on the quilt. And, you know, for that one moment, 
he was able to see that people are memorializing those lives. People are giving names to the suffering and to the people who did not make it. Peggy Hazard, curator of the project and Jody's collaborator, is a lively woman with blonde curly hair and colorful prescription glasses. She hopes these quilts will eventually keep a record of what migration once was, someday when people won't have to die crossing the border. Peggy has full faith that the quilts will be taken and well-preserved by the Arizona Historical Society for the foreseeable future. The oldest historical agency in Arizona, the Historical Society is the custodian of many artifacts and manuscript holdings that can be used for educational purposes, exhibits, and research. I can only hope that in the future, you know, immigration issue will, will have evolved and, and become um, more sane <laughs> and uh, more compassionate. And they'll look back on these objects as referencing a time that, wow, I can't believe it used to be like that. You know, that's what I really hope. Vanessa is taking me through the exhibit, and we're facing the 2019-2020 quilt. It arrived just a week before the exhibit opened. It transports you from the museum to the Sonoran Desert. The names and desconocidos, unidentified individuals, are outlined on the border of the quilt on jean fabric. Inside this border are pinks, blues, oranges, and yellows depicting the sunset behind the mountains. The silhouettes of migrants crossing the border are stitched into this quilt resembling a painting. So they've used actual dresses to put a dress on this woman. They've used pants to put pants on the child, jeans to put on the man, and then the sweater is actually the backside layout of a sweater um, that's been stitched on there as well, and then the sunset colors. They don't have arms, you know, obviously the sweater's different, but there's not hands attached to it or anything. Looking at the quilt, you don't get the sense of these individuals being migrants. You don't see their faces. They don't look like they are doing something wrong. And at the end of the day, this is what prompted these volunteers to make and show these quilts. They want to change perceptions and start conversations about migration-related issues. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Julia Bloomberg. Los Desconocidos, the Migrant Quilt Project, is on display at the Arizona History Museum. That's at 949 East 2nd Street in Tucson, near the western edge of the U of A campus. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.